welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. Welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we're going to dive into the the numbers of archery and the business side of archery a little bit. I've got on the line with me Mr. Jay Mackininch, who is the president of the Archery Trade Association. Jay, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Nice to be here, Chris. I look forward to talking with you folks. Yes. Um, so the Archery Trade Association, you guys represent the the manufacturers of bows and archery equipment. And do you represent uh, archery dealers as well, Jay? We do. In fact, one of the fun things about this industry being a smaller industry and a little bit more of a, a very passionate, committed cottage industry, we uh, we represent them all. We are a uh, uh, association that was founded in 53, and from the beginning, we have included manufacturers, we've included retailers, we've included distributors. Uh, there's folks out there doing sales representative work. There's media. Uh, there's even uh, supporting members and nonprofit members. The state agencies are members. So quite frankly, anybody who has an interest in archery and bow hunting of almost any kind or type uh, has has come in under our uh, umbrella and 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 wants to and is all working together together to see if we can't uh, maintain what we do and 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 hopefully grow it. So, how many members does the ATA have all told, Jay? We have um, 650 manufacturing members. Uh, we have several thousand retail members, and that number fluctuates a great deal depending on time of year because many of them join to become part of the trade shows. Uh, the trade shows for most of our, what I would call core industry members, are the greatest value we provide because, as you know, because you've been there, it's that one time and that one place in the year where everybody can get together and, um, and really not only network and trade information, but a substantial amount of the product the manufacturers produce and the services they provide are acquired by retailers and distributors and other folks who then carry those things to the you know four corners of the world. So um, at any one time, uh, we have a, a lot of different retail members, but yet numbers don't always spell the game. We have only about 25 or 30 of what we call multi-channel retailers, but a lot of them are fairly big entities like Cabela's and Bass Pro and Dick's Sporting goods and Walmart and those kinds of folks. We don't have a lot of online retailers who strictly do online work, but there's one that many people may have heard of called Amazon that sits there who does a significant amount of business in our industry. So um, so we have lots of members of all different kinds and types, but one unique feature of a trade association that I'd really like your listeners to know and understand is that we don't have individual members like most of them uh, belong to a club or a bow hunting club or a Pope and Young club or, or, or something like that. Uh, companies are our members. In other words, when we talk about members, it's a company. So Easton is one member, even though it's a very large company, and a retail shop with only one uh, manager running it and maybe one part-time person, they're another member. So trade associations are aggregates of business that band together uh, to try to do better together. But anyway, the point is we have just about everybody under that umbrella and, and thousands of them from all over the world. So everybody, like you say, from Matthew, and Hoyt to Amazon.com to Joe from Joe's Pro Shop, which runs out of Joe's Garage. All our members, and right. yes, and all our members, and um, and of any kind and type, even in the media world, you guys that you know run larger media outfits are, are members of ours. Well, sure, and we, our, we look our, parent, to our parent company would be a member, right? Outdoor Sports Program. Exactly, and then you're going to be the same kind of member, unfortunately, or sometimes maybe unfortunately for you guys, as uh, the the guy that has a uh, a uh, smartphone with a video capability, and he may be doing a podcast from a floor 
before as, as kind of a one-man band. Sure. So, so you guys do a lot, and like you say, most of my listeners who are bow hunters probably know you guys almost exclusively because of the annual archery trade show that you guys do, which is, of course, where folks like myself get to see all the new product each year, and we start to disseminate that information out to uh, our, our audiences. But you guys do a lot of other things, too, throughout the year to promote the sport of, of archery, right? We do. We, we actually have a couple of different, you know, divisions or parts of, of our house, as I call it. Um, the part that lives closest to the trade show is our member services part. And in that part of our, of our house, we do a lot of things from business education to even within the four walls of a retail shop. How do guys help add the service and support that it takes to help people get into archery and stay in archery? How do we help their staff learn how to tune bows and become better at keeping bow hunters and archers? more proficient with their equipment, all those things that go into helping those businesses frankly, be better at what they do. Uh, another side of our house called Outreach and Education is where we spend a ton of time working with everything from state agencies to archery groups like USA Archery uh, to people like the Pope and Young Club and other people. To those that have the interest and time and capability, we try to add to their ability uh, to grow participation. We've rolled out programs like Explore Archery, Explore Bow Hunting, Explore Bow Fishing. We've been the, probably the single largest supporter of the National Archery and the School program in that we lined up the states and we leveraged the states and asked them to help implement that program. So really, everything and anything that would help us grow archery and bow hunting participation at the community level is done in that part of our house. And then we have another fairly significant communications, social, and digital uh, part of, of our operation that you're familiar with, um, run by Teresa Johnson. I know you've worked with her. But under that same roof is where we run an Archery 360 platform, which is both the digital and social platform and we're rolling out a bow hunting 360 platform and that's where the folks go who just simply want to engage uh, whether it's socially or digitally in what we're doing online and, and read content as well as interact and engage in all kinds of things, archery and bow hunting. So, so you're right. There's a lot of dimensions to what we do, and we hope all of them complement our entire mission, which is to see more people enjoy archery and go bow hunting uh, on, a, on, a, on an annual basis. Yeah, so let's talk about the size of the market. You know, you and I had a chance to speak briefly recently, which kind of led to this conversation today because you started to throw a bunch of numbers out at me, and I found it all extremely fascinating. So I hope those who are listening today, you know, are equally fascinated. How many, how many archers and bow hunters do we sort of generally think that we've got here uh, in the U.S. or in North America? I don't know how you guys track it well we uh we we track all this doing uh survey work and we have a you know a national survey firm that has done work throughout the conservation arena natural resource arena uh doing this work for us and they do it on on a periodic basis we've done more of this kind of tracking over the last five years but the last annual survey we did and we're about to do another one for 2016 is figures for 2015 and what we know from that data is is that 23.8 million American citizens that are 18 years of old or older took part in archery during the, the, the calendar year of 2015. Um, now that includes um, bow hunting and it includes um, archery and includes the crossover people who did both. So for example, if you take a look at the uh, that that total number, 65% of that 23.8 million people who shot bows and arrows during 2015 only did recreational archery, which is an interesting t statistic, which means that they really outnumber uh, uh, those who went bow hunting. Now, alternatively, 37% uh, or, or, or excuse me, 35% uh, bow hunted and only about 12% just bow hunted. So let me tease that apart a little bit. 65% of the American groups that we had shooting bows and arrows did just recreational archery. 12% only did bow hunting and 23% did both. So it's interesting when you look at it, it's like two thirds of the people shooting bows and arrows don't go bow hunting. Now we don't know all of why and we're looking into that now, but it's an interesting shift from what was the case, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I'm sure you're familiar with how we have been so dominant 
dominated in archery by bow hunting, especially in the United States. Yeah, so so is that because you've seen a decrease in the number of bow hunters, or is it because there's just been a rapid increase in the number of recreational archers? It, it's a little bit of both, but let me throw some numbers at you again just to help you out. In 2012, which is only three short, well, four short surveys before the 2015 survey, uh, let me skip 13 and 14 in between and go right to 2012, one of the first years we had national data, the target archery only participants were 55%. So that as a percentage, that group grew, grew 10% in four years. Bow hunting in 2012 was about the same, about 10%. So in other words, it did not change. What changed was the number of people doing both. 35% of the people did both, now 23% did. So the net effect is there's been an increase in the number of people shooting bows and arrows, but most of that increase has gone to recreational archery. Now, let me quickly say, bow hunting is about the same, but I think a lot of people feel like bow hunting has also been, quote, soft, meaning guys aren't as participating maybe quite as much. Maybe some of them are getting older like me and not able to participate as much as we'd like. Uh, whatever the reason, and we're, we're digging into that now, and we're going to know those answers, so in about another couple of months, I'd like to come back and share that with you, because we're concerned about that. But the good news is the growth in archery overall has been good for everybody, and I believe extremely good for recreational archery. Well, you yeah, you talked about, you know, that idea of bow hunting being soft and I'm wondering, I'm just doing the math here too, looking at those numbers from 2015, I think you said is your most recent numbers and you said there's about 23.8 million archers and I think you said what? Like 35% of those people said they bow hunted? Is that right? Yep. So that's, that's like right. that's like 8.4 million bow hunters. But sometimes I hear the the word that there's only like 3 million archery licenses sold nationwide in a given year. Is that not true or do you hear that same thing and if that's the case, what's the discrepancy there of like 5 million people? We, we've, we've, we've wrestled with that discrepancy ever since we first started doing those surveys, and the numbers we're coming up with are plus or minus 1%, and they're scientifically you know, provable. But we always have to remember, these are what people are telling us. And so we, what we think going on, first of all, the 3 to 4 million is a number the states have often had. And remember that uh, it's, a, it's a combined figure of licensed sales that the states report. But there's also a big problem with their data because there's not all that many states that sell an independent bow, you know, archery license strictly so they can count those guys. Ohio, Alabama, there's large numbers of states that sell a hunting license and bow hunters buy the same license that gun hunters do. So there's problems with that data, and most of the states will tell you they feel that data has for years underreported the total amount of participation in bow hunting because, again, like I said, a state like Ohio, a really, really strong hunting state, a guy buys his license, he really doesn't have to tell anybody what he's using. He simply has a legal license and can hunt in a gun season. He can hunt in a bow season. He can hunt with a crossbow. He can do really legally what he what he wants as long as he's staying within the confines of the hunting season. So that number is an underrepresentation to start with. The second piece of this is, is that what we've learned is, is there's a lot of guys out there who may not actually have hunted that year, but they, they still self-identify as a bow hunter. Now, to us, they're still important to us because that means that they still feel that there's an affiliation with us. Remember that we're talking about a participation study or a study that says, this is what I, I, I said I did, and they don't always do it. Or they don't all they don't want to not identify with a group of people with whom they really want to be associated. So um, so that's why those numbers are, are a discrepancy. Now, if we drill down and started really getting into like we are in some of our follow up surveys, how many days did you actually hunt? Did you actually purchase equipment? In other words, the degree to which they got into it, we're going to have much more refined numbers on who actually did what. And I'm confident the actual 
reduction is less than that eight million, but still more than what the states report, and and, and probably going to find itself somewhere in between. Right. So what you're trying to do with the future surveys is to get the get a handle on you know how many of that eight million are actually your your core group of people who are avid on an annual basis, right? Right. In fact, we are going to we, we in the data we generate from some of these sort of more scientific studies, we get into looking at who are the avid people, meaning, excuse me, they probably hunt on a weekly basis or if not uh, biweekly. Who are the more casual bow hunters who may only have a single hunt a year for a week at a time? It's easy to associate those with firearms hunting because I think a lot of people know in firearms hunting, there's frankly millions of hunters. But how many go beyond the first few days? How many go beyond the first week? In bow hunting with long seasons, we do have the chance to separate the guys out into avid, a bit more casual. And then there's some that are extremely, you know, hit or miss. They may hunt, you know, only a couple of days simply because, you know, sometimes life gets in the way or they're doing other things. So uh, there's a wide array of these kinds of data, and, and you really have to spend a lot of time and a lot of money to sort them out. From our purposes, we want to start with that sort of global thing of how many people said they participated or had some relationship with archery on an annual basis. And so we start from there, segregate them into bow hunters, segregate them into archers, and then we start drilling down to get more and more information. You know, there's one thing that is often said in bow hunting circles, which is that, you know, the top 10% of bow hunters kill 90% of the game. And I don't really know if that's entirely true or not, but I think that there's probably some element to truth in that, which is, you know, that the, the most dedicated, hardcore participants among us, you know, tend to a- account for an, an inordinate percentage of the overall tags that are filled. What about on the business side, Jay? Is there any data or even anecdotal evidence that you guys have gathered or just what you hear from your manufacturing and retailing members that, you know, there's a, a relatively small subset of all bow hunters that kind of generate, you know, a sizable segment of the economic activity revolving around our sport? Um, generally, that trend is true across the board, whether you're talking about taking deer or spending money. It's generally uh, been true. But let me let me go back to your other statement first, because I don't know that you know, but some of your listeners may know that I spent over 20 years as a, a wildlife research biologist and did some of the original bow hunting studies, like a very large wounding study in Minnesota back in the 90s and a bunch of other studies. And one of the interesting things is during those years in the 80s and 90s, when we started some of the urban bow hunting programs, the very first one we started was in 1978 in New York, and I think that's still one of the first. And um, we started them in had them in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Almost every major area now has a bow hunting program. And I wanted to tell you because I happen to know those numbers that we actually did look at. You know, when you put a group of bow hunters in these urban situations and you want them to take deer, and it's a little different than just the statewide numbers, but I think it's still a pretty germane situation to take a look at. You're right. Uh, a few bow hunters take the majority of the deer, but you need the rest of the bow hunters because the, the, the odds that they will take a deer every year, every other year, every third year, or at least, you know, some kind of deer take uh, is going to add to the total take. And collectively, they've, they've been able to really, in many ways, bring bow hunting into a position in most urban suburban areas in the country where bow hunting is the management tool that's working uh, for deer. So, but I wanted to reiterate that you're, you're right on. It's not anecdotal that we actually had hard evidence that um, guys who hunt more kill more, and a very few guys hunt the most tend to kill the most. I remember a guy, a couple of the fellows that worked in, in Twin Cities that, that, well, I say work, they were bow hunters. I, I, I know they had other jobs, but I sometimes wondered. They, uh, they actually killed by themselves probably the vast majority of deer in many of the cities because they really went out and went after it. So, so that, that phenomenon is true. Now, when you shift to the industry side, it's generally been true. You know, guys who shoot more, guys who spend more 
more time, like you would in anything, are going to be more tuned in to the, the idiosyncrasies of their equipment. They're going to be spending more time with their equipment, going to have probably more advanced, more more uh, high-performing equipment, which generally is going to mean more cost. We're not sure that's true anymore. In fact, we've got a study in the field that, again, in a couple of months, I'll come back and tell you about, where we're looking at the purchasing behavior of bow hunters, but we're especially interested in what's happening with younger bow hunters, millennials, which is the largest group out there in the American society now, and Gen Xers, which are the 35 to 50 year olds. Um, and then how does that compare to my generation? I'm 65, the baby boomers. We, we kind of have been driving a lot of this bow hunting thing for some time. We think those purchasing patterns have changed and we're not sure what they are right now, but the data tells us at least anecdotally that they're, that they have changed in some ways and we don't know, we don't know what's happened. So, uh, uh, so the answer to your question is, I think that model has worked in the past, hunt more, spend more. I think in, in these, this day and age, I'm not sure that's still true. Yeah, and you had mentioned something to me uh, when we talked recently, and then I think you, you touched on it again a few minutes ago, this idea that bow hunting's been a bit soft, and I don't know, you know if you meant that from a participation standpoint or from a sales standpoint. I know we had discussed regarding sales having been somewhat soft in the bow hunting equipment market here the last two, three years, and you had mentioned something to me specifically in terms of the high-end bows. I guess, you know, with a lot of companies making flagship models that are in the 1000 to $1,500 range uh, and maybe not seeing the level of sales that they had hoped for or anticipated, is that something that's being borne out in the sales data? And, and what then, if that is the case, you know, what's the answer to, you know, serving maybe a different price point in the marketplace? Um, that's essentially what you've just phrased is the question we're pursuing. Has something changed? Because uh, there, when we talked about bow hunting being soft, one of the one of the features of of, of that characterization is that that bow sales have been off a bit in, in past years. But in talking with bow manufacturers, it looks like it's been almost largely on the high end. But there's a lot of a lot of things to pull apart there to try to help us understand. To start with, there are a lot of folks who feel like high-end bows have kept getting higher and higher. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, the users have told me that they were able to get into what they thought was a nice high-end bow for $1,000 or $1,200. Today, you can spend $1,800 or $2,000. So some of this could be wrapped up, too, in just what you said. The price points have, have shifted higher, and maybe they've gone beyond what some of those guys are willing to spend. Or they feel like the bows they're finding in that $800 to $1,000 range are maybe perfectly fine and suit their needs. So we're digging into that now is really the, the most important answer I need to give you to try to understand what's going on there. But the bigger question of bow hunting being soft, I think, relates to a lot of other issues that go beyond just pricing and purchasing. It just goes to a lot that's going on out there right now that's impacting bow hunting, not the least of which is CWD in many states, which has really taken hold. And I, I think it's scaring a lot of us that are worried about the deer resource. So you, you really think that a lot of people are not, you know, hunting and they're afraid to, what, cons consume deer or is that what you're getting? No, at? I don't think... I don't think it's not that so much, but um, I, I think what it is is, well, for example, in Wisconsin, um, it, there is, you know, it used to be just a few states in, a, in one outbreak area in 2003 or two or three when it first started, and today it's it's across most of the state, and a few of the, few of the counties have, have situations. There's a couple of uh, counties in the outbreak area that have 40% of the adult bucks that have CWD, and remember with CWD, when a deer gets it, they die. There is no recovery. We don't have a lot of research going on, but I think in those areas, if you're a bow hunter and, and you're, say, my age, you're retired, you bought a piece of land, you have your little, little, little piece of the world and you're always looking forward to bow hunting and CWD sets in, um, it's a concerning issue. And what we have discovered, and a lot of it's anecdotally, but a lot of guys get concerned about it. You've got diseased deer running around that you're going to start to encounter. They're not worried about eating it so much. It just changes their excitement for going out and hunting and, and going after, you know, a, you know, everybody's going after a vibrant deer and hopefully one that, that is a decent-sized deer. And, of course, every guy hopes at some point in his lifetime a really super buck is going to walk by and he'll get a chance to shoot it. But all of the CWD issues, 
and the lack of answers and the spread and the continuing uh, drama, I guess I'd say, has caused some guys to be a little less motivated to go out. Now, remember, too, we were just talking earlier about casual bow hunters. Guys who only hunt, you know, infrequently or periodically, as you well know, it doesn't take a whole lot of obstacles to get in the way for them to just simply choose to do something else. You know, that we always forget sometimes that a lot of these bow hunters we have, especially the ones that are a bit more casual, they probably duck hunt. They probably have kids playing ball sports in the fall. They probably have a lot of other things going on in their life. They may freshwater fish. You know, you have a lot of outdoor recreation opportunities, thankfully, in the U.S., and especially in a lot of these states that have CWD. And we don't know, but we think some of them may be spending a little more time doing other things. I hope it's not the case, and I hope it doesn't continue. I hope we get answers to CWD that give confidence to guys that they can go out and, and be sure that we can manage these deer populations and CWD won't become uh, the kind of scourge that, that right now some people think it's starting to become. Yeah, well, that's obviously going to continue to be an issue here for the, for the foreseeable future because, like you said, unfortunately, science just doesn't know enough about the disease and, and the, you know, there's no treatment. So that's kind of a, that is an, that's a cloud that unfortunately is probably going to linger over us for, for a little while here. Um, now let's talk about something else. And I'd like to draw an analogy. You touched on something in terms of, you know, other activities and sports in, in particular. And, and as the father of two boys, okay, I've got a 13 year old and an 11 year old, both of whom are, uh, semi avid hunters. You know, they've both taken deer, uh, multiple deer and, and dad certainly being, being the editor of Peterson's bow hunting, I make sure we find time to get out in the field. But, uh, um, you know, uh, my older boyfriend, okay, he's he's a big baseball player. But the funny thing is, I can't get him to sit down and watch a major league game with me on TV. And he said to me just the other day, he said, Dad, when I sit down and I try to watch a baseball game, you know, there's just not that much going on. And I get bored really fast because it's not like when I'm on the field and I'm engrossed the whole time and I'm thinking about, you know, every pitch and what's going on. And it's kind of the same thing as a dad trying to get my kids in the field. You know, I get my kids out there and we sit for an hour or two and then they start to say, well, dad, when is the deer going to show up? You know, and <laughs> if I knew that, you know, I'd, I'd be a millionaire. Right. And so I'm competing against video games and a lot of other things for their attention. And they're used to instant gratification. And I can't provide that. So baseball, of course, I don't know if you're a baseball fan or if you've been paying attention like, for instance, this year, if they want to intentionally walk somebody, they're not going to make them throw the four pitches anymore. And they're trying uh, maybe a pitch clock for the pitchers to keep the game moving along. They're actually talking about um, shrinking the size of the strike zone so that we get more balls put in play and less strikeouts. They're really thinking about the changing demographics and attitudes of those millennials like you're talking about. And how do we keep them engaged with our sport? I think there's some of the same issues issues when it comes to bow hunting and you know if you agree with me tell me what we're doing as an industry to try and address that well and 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 i'm glad you brought up that topic uh because that really goes to the heart of you know how and what we may have to do to be challenged with bow hunting um that's one of the things that i see too i've got three grandsons that all shoot and guess what they like to do most they're 11 9 and 6 shoot arrows so you get them all revved up to go bow hunting you you get them through and they learn and spend time in the woods and and uh, you know i've had my grandsons out they can't hunt yet the two younger ones that we we had grunt tubes we had deer around we're having some fun doing some things but as you as you just said you take them out it's like getting all dressed up for the to go to dinner but the dinner never happens um <laughs> the deer didn't come they don't get a shot they may go a whole season and not shoot a shot well what sport is it that you do that in it's sort of like you get to go in the dugout to use your baseball analogy you get in the on deck you get to play in the field but you never get to bat and right. how many kids play a sport where you never get to bat now i'm not a big baseball fan i'm more of a football fan but it's the same thing you know when you first get peewees out there and i've coached football you ask the guys who are 
all wants to be a quarterback, every hand goes up. Who all wants to be the center, every hand goes down. Um, so people, kids like to be where the action is, and I think you're right. It extends into millennials these days, into the actions they like to do. So what's the dilemma? Well, you know, I think sometimes it's right in front of us. Why do so many people today, and especially after seeing the Hunger Games movies and the Avengers and all the other movies and stuff that's out there, my God, in the last four or five years, our sport has been a recipient of the biggest free marketing campaign that anybody's ever had. I mean, Matt Damon is running around with a bow in a new movie that's just coming out, and I saw one of our staff wrote a really nice article about it on Archery Trade on Archery 360. Same thing. Everybody's enamored with bows and arrows. Well, guess what? They're shooting them. Recreational archers can go to the range or go to the shop and shoot several hundred arrows a day at anything they want. Many of them don't like to keep score. They're just having fun. So you hit on a point I think that's really germane. Shooting arrows is what still is what most people who go to archery like to do. Now, translate it into bow hunting. What are we going to do? Explore bow hunting. We probably have to step back, and we've tried to do that with the Explore Bow Hunting Program, which is a, a school curriculum. It's in 27-odd states. It's gone gangbusters in states like Oklahoma, where they've got like hun several hundred schools have it. But guess what happens? Out of the 22 units, there's only one where they shoot bows and arrows. In the other ones, they're fooling around with calls, things to play with. They're fooling around with scents and lures. They're fooling around with trail cameras. Getting people, it's sort of like fishing. I think we, we've forgotten how to get people engaged in all the really fun parts of bow hunting that have a lot to do with things other than shooting bows and arrows. So that's that's step one, I think. Step two is, we kind of forgot too, because when I got into bow hunting as a kid, I shot rabbits, I shot small game um, a lot. And so if I went out rabbit hunting in the afternoon, I might shoot a bunch of arrows, depending on how much money I had to spend. Um, but I might shoot a bunch of arrows. If I went deer hunting, I almost honestly didn't expect to shoot a, a, an arrow. So but small game hunting might be an option, but there's a big growing one out there now is bow fishing. And you've come to our show. I'm sure you've noticed the dramatic increase in bow fishing activity. I think it's partly driven by, again, the same thing. I have a nine-year-old grandson, one of them. He, came, he comes out for a week, and we go bow fishing. We go for stingrays in the bay. He may shoot 50 shots in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. He is in heaven. He's, he's shooting uh, all kinds of things. So moral of the story is I think you've really hit something on the head that the long hours that a lot of us enjoy spending in the woods, probably with memories and everything else, and we're happy to go ahead and not have to we don't get enamored with, you know, having to shoot the equipment. But if you're action oriented, we need to think about more of the diversity of things that we can do. I mean, my I was talking about my grandson. He had a great time this year grunting at almost every deer that came through. We played with deer like you can't imagine. And I didn't realize what great fun it was for him. Then we fooled around with some scrapes and we got down and walked around, you know, put some urine in him and did some other things. So I think we need to expand the activities so we really turn our group. Our, our folks into hunters. I think we need to expand the things they can shoot at. Bow fishing in the spring, huge fun. So um, we've got to get action into our sport if we want to continue to repeat. So I'm completely underscoring what you're seeing with your sons and I've seen with my grandsons. We have to do it. We don't have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I need to just do that. Like like you said, just say, get the bows, guys. Let's just go take a walk and shoot squirrels. You know, there's plenty of them out there. And heck, who knows if you can, you can hit one of those suckers with an arrow, but we could have a lot of fun trying, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny, too? Kids are still kids. Um, you know, you probably were prone to it. I will have to admit to on occasion shooting something I probably wasn't supposed to shoot, like, you know, something on the barn door or something something in the woods I just wanted to take a shot at. Um, shooting arrows is an awful lot of fun and having the freedom to, to just roam. And, you know, there used to be a lot of folks that just stump shot. And there are people who uh, I know of a, a couple of, of, of young women who like to go out and go for a walk and basically just shoot. They love using that as a target archery situation where they can shoot at soft targets, whether it's a clump of grass and that sort of thing. You can get into a little competition doing that. So I, I think the whole point is we need action and people want action. Let's give it to them and let's be willing to go ahead and flex a little bit so that maybe it's not always, you know, the the seriousness of sitting hunkered down in the stand for hours waiting for uh, waiting for that deer to come. Yep. Now, 
you know, we've kind of gotten on a bit of a Debbie Downer here for a little while. We were not in a bad way, but we've talked about some challenges, right? Some of the things that that are going on that maybe aren't exactly how we'd, we'd wish them to be. But that's not to say that there's no bright spots in the world of archery or bow hunting by any stretch of the imagination. I know uh, one thing that we're really excited about, and actually we're going to be uh, highlighting here in one of our upcoming issues, and something that you share my enthusiasm is uh, female participation in archery and bow hunting has been on the rise. And um, talk to me a little bit about that, Jay, what you're seeing in terms of numbers and what you think that means for the future of our industry. You know, one of the things that we've always struggled with, uh, especially when you go back a few decades to, to my generation, is being such a male-dominated sport. Um, but one of the things that has been significantly changing is not just the composition gender-wise. You know, we're now to the point where, uh, at least in, in many places, women make up a, a, a not only a, a reasonable um, um, a percentage of people involved in, in all of archery in 2000. In this last few studies, it's been it's been going between about 30 and 40 percent of all of archery. Now, of course, there's a fairly significant portion of women that are in recreational archery, but in bow hunting, as you and I talked, I think, in one of our last conversations, it's now into the double digits, and, and in many states, well into the double digits, you know, trending towards 20 or 25 percent. Age-wise, we've seen a reduction. Uh, we saw some of this in some of our social media. When we threw out some things related to the Hunger Games in 2012 and launched this Archery 360 site that everybody's having a lot of fun with, we had uh, several million people on that site. And when we took a look, 90% were under 18 and 70% were female. Now tell me if that looks anything like our bow hunting segment. Um, and we know that a portion of all those people are trending to want to get outdoors and have some fun. And one of the things that you should know is that, and it's a good thing, these changes in demographics, the younger audience, the more female audience, has caused us to work with our retailers to make sure that they know how to cater to that audience. It's one thing to cater to the, you know, the burly redneck that comes in that knows archery equipment and knows what he wants to do and wants to go hunting, but it's another to deal with folks who are coming at this from a completely different point of view, um, making sure they have the right introduction to the sport, even challenges for our uh manufacturers that many of them are now meeting in a really good way, and that is new equipment, lighter equipment, equipment made for women, uh, which is something uh, you'll hear women talk about when you get around them uh, as participants. So there is some really, really good news uh, that I think people need to keep focused on that we're getting more diverse. It's it's changing. Things are getting different. It may be creating some issues for us to juggle you know, financially in the industry as well as the states juggling in terms of license sales, but you know, those are those are good problems if we continue to get people outdoors and recreate and take advantage of their interests in what we do. Yeah, and I think it shines light on different aspects of the sport, too. Um, like, for instance, you know, I think, like you say, the stereotype of the, you know, the, the 40, 50-year-old guy who's been a bow hunter for a long time, and we may be thinking, uh, I'm hunting, you know, I want to get a four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half-year-old buck. I want to shoot a 150, a 160, whatever. I'm holding out for the biggest buck in the area. A lot of these women who are now becoming more noteworthy in bow hunting, you know, they're getting into it because they want to, uh, you know, have a little bit more of that experience of the outdoors as well as putting meat on the table for their families, you know, that organic meat and that locally sourced sustainable type uh, grocery thing. It's kind of adding a whole new dimension into our ranks. It is, and in fact, it's such a growing dimension. You've probably, uh, I think most of your listeners have probably heard by now, Stephen Rinello, the meat eater. He has done a lot with taking the the entire segment of hunting, but especially bow hunting, from you know just the the being a unique piece of equipment that hunters like to use to hunt to becoming a bit more of a way of life and an expression of physicality and being fit and going out in nature and finding organic, well-grown, you know, homegrown food and then taking it to the table and really enjoying the experience. One of the things a lot of people may not know is Steve's right out of New York City um, from as urban a place as you can find in America. And a lot of his peer group are urbanites from Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn. And he talks about going back and talking with them and they've got an innate curiosity 
about bow hunting, especially and about getting you know locally grown food. There's a cult of folks out there, and I don't mean a cult in a bad way, but I mean a culture growing that's called locavores that are in many suburban areas who are taking advantage of a resource that's right on their doorstep. You know, as you know, we're lucky now to see bow hunting occurring in almost every major suburban area in the country, and so they can participate, but also get that locally grown food. And to them, that's becoming an important part of the sustenance and the the ability to take a very urban experience and try to reach back to some natural connection. And while a lot of our more, you know, woodsy hunters who don't like to hunt around other people may look down on that, I hope they appreciate what those folks are doing. They're making the best of a situation in a suburban area where they don't have the same opportunity to maybe go out to the, you know, the, 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 the backwoods, but they're still finding nature where they can and they enjoy what we enjoy, they just do it differently. And so, again, it's another one of those changes we're talking about that, you know, we've got to adapt to. But but it's all good because they have come to find what we love just in a different way. Absolutely. And if you've ever had a chance, I have, and sounds like you probably have, some of that suburban hunting is not only is it a heck of a lot of fun, Jay, but you'll find some of the darndest dandy bucks in those areas there you never expect so. i'll tell you a quick story we did a study in minnesota um one of my graduate students this is back when i was in that uh, that group we had a 900 acre park called highland park right in bloomington minnesota and you're right we began to see such a collection of bucks in that area that we did a study because we had five pope and young bucks all existing in 900 acres. Now, where would that occur except in a suburban neighborhood? And we figured out how they were trying to coexist and actually did a study to try to understand what the heck is going on here. And of course, as you can imagine, those bow hunters who went in there to help control and manage the population, quote, for the good of the community, got got a little distracted by those antlers walking around. Some of them took some dandy bucks that they would have never seen elsewhere in, in Minnesota had it not been for those suburban, you know, well-fed deer yeah let's uh let's shift gears and talk talk about another growth area in the archery world uh and that's the crossbow you know this isn't anything entirely new it's probably been going on for maybe a decade a decade and a half but i think it's safe to say that the crossbow continues to generate significant interest and continues to be one of the brighter uh stars in in the archery constellation it has been. It's really been a, a tool that has, I think, increased participation in archery overall. Now, we're not sure, and we're, we're, we're going to be doing some work to try to figure out where all those folks come from, because we know that some of them may have been archers that maybe uh, got older and, and, and maybe weren't as, as capable of shooting a vertical bow, and they came back to bow hunting because the crossbow gave them that opportunity. They may have been gun hunters who simply have always wanted to take advantage of the longer season, but didn't have the, you know, didn't quite have everything that they felt it took to shoot a vertical bow, so they decided to shoot a crossbow, which was a little easier. For whatever reasons, there's no question that has been a growth area. You know, about, you know, five or five short years ago, crossbows had, had gotten to a point even after some initial states came on board of being about 30% of, of all archers out there and, and compounds were, were resting in at about 75% and the rest were both recurves and, and other bows. But in this 2015 survey, I think is when we saw, you know, kind of the, 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 the more settling out and, 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 and compounds ending up at about 65%, uh, crossbows ending up, you know, at about 35% and just a scant folks out there shooting uh, the rest of the equipment. So it's it's been uh, the last few years, I think, a settling out period and and one that's been good for, for all of archery, I think, even though I know there's been a lot of consternation about, you know, what crossbows have brought and, 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 and who shoots them and, and how they are different than compounds and different than recurves. Well, that's the next thing, of course, I was going to say is you know, crossbows tend to be very controversial and I, I don't know, you know, how long you've been around. I wasn't really you know active in the sport at the time when compound bows made their appearance you know but certainly i've been heavily involved in the 
period that has seen the you know the prevalence of crossbows and the liberalization of crossbow hunting regulations and opportunities across the country take place and it seems like there's a lot of parallels between the journey of the compound bow into the mainstream to the the crossbow in the mainstream and and it kind of seems like maybe the a lot of the rancor that existed at one time is is starting to die off jay and i don't know if that's because people have changed their attitudes or maybe it's just because the war you know has been fought and and won by you know crossbow advocates in so many states and so there's nothing much to fight about anymore or what but i mean are you seeing that like the just that the sort of the acceptance whether that be enthusiastic or simply resignation that the acceptance of the crossbow is much more so than it was maybe five ten years ago well, I, 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 there's, there's a lot of, of, of issues there that you've raised, and I think they're all extremely important, and especially to the social fabric of bow hunting. But I think in terms of just general acceptance, I think there's no question crossbows have been much more widely accepted. And, of course, that's what you would expect to have happen when they become legal in just about every state. Um, the, the consumers or the users out there are going to gravitate towards what they want to use and what they think will suit their purposes most. And as it turns out, there's been many, many people who found a crossbow to suit their needs. Um, I think we also have to remember, though, that when you deal with the social fabric of bow hunting, you're dealing with a much, much, much smaller proportion of all those folks who are out there participating in bow hunting, whether it's with a crossbow compound or recurve or traditional bow. You're dealing with just those bow hunters who've chosen to become a member of an organization and affiliate with others. When when we did some studies uh, about... Um, 15 years ago, and I don't know if it's exactly germane today, but it was one of the few studies that was ever done. We did a study of all the bow hunters in Minnesota, and we found that less than 3% belong to any archery or bow hunting organization, meining that archers and bow hunters have tended to not be joiners. Uh, if you look at the Pope and Young Club, uh, their total membership you know, is very small, and they're the only real national organization. So my point with this is um, the social fabric of bow hunting is argued and thought about among those people in these groups, and that's different than the acceptance of crossbows that has happened among the large user groups that actually go to the field. But let me go to the social side. It has been a very difficult time and frankly, I am old enough. I started as a recurve shooter in the 60s and shot a recurve right up until almost the year 2000. Not because I didn't like compounds, it's just because A, I couldn't afford one, and B, I was kind of where you were, raising my kids and doing other things, and changing was just not something I felt prepared to spend the time to do. Um, But nonetheless, there was a war going on between the new compounds, and there's still a few guys out there that wish the compounds had never come. If you remember in the Pope and Young record book, for many years, all of a sudden, this compound thing just got to taking off, and people knew it was different, knew it was maybe easier in some ways, so they drew a line. 65% lot off, you couldn't have more than that. Well, bows went past that because users wanted it. It went to 70%, 80%, 90% let off. Now I'm not sure I know currently exactly how Pope and Young Club treats you know those higher let off bows, but then who's who's testing bows when a guy sends in a head, um, sends in a score? Who, who verifies? So I don't know that that hasn't been more widely accepted. And then you're right, beginning in the same time, 80s, 90s, but reaching a crescendo in the 2000 to 2010 era, crossbows, you know, became became the, the huge battle and fight that went on in many states. It ended with many times them being legalized, and now that we found the users are embracing them. Um, so I think there's remnants of that, those, that social strife out there, but I think in general it's subsided. Uh, some of it's just you know been part of the, the process of maturing the sport and everybody getting used to everybody finding their, their equipment of choice. Either way, there's no question we're at probably one of the more quiet times, although we have a new piece of equipment out there coming from the air gun community that has caused a lot of people concern. Um, our trade association, for example, has actually taken the position that uh, air guns are not uh, archery equipment, no matter even if they shoot a projectile uh, that's an arrow. Um, so there's always something. Um, thankfully, most of the crossbow compound and recurve users are now, I think, you know, realizing they're part of a single community. Yeah, so you brought up the air bow. So you guys, are, I, I hesitate... I'm kind of of your mind on that, Jay. I, I mean, it's a it shoots an arrow, but it's shot by compressed air. There's no string, and there's nothing drawn. I, I don't know that it is a bow. I, I, 
I maybe was aware, although we, we never discussed it before. So how do you reach a decision on a, you know, a potentially controversial topic like that to, to actually take a position and come out and, with a statement saying that we don't consider, you know, the air bow a bow? Well, for us, it's a process that we've done in many cases, and it actually goes all the way back to recurves, compounds, and crossbows. It's it's a it's a process that has embedded in our trade association and has been there for some time. And that's this: we have a technical committee of licensed engineers who work for all the major companies who work cooperatively to see that all the equipment that everybody buys, you know, works well together. That there's standards and 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 guidelines for how to make sure all that the equipment uh, is safe um, and and meets the needs of the consumers. When it comes to the actual types of bows out there, they even have descriptions that are scientific and much more engineering uh, compatible. But we can we can distill those down to say what is uh, archery equipment and what is not. And when our technical committee was asked a year ago to review uh, the equipment being put out by the air gun industry, uh, they reviewed the, the equipment. They, they put together a definition of a recurve bow, a compound bow, and a crossbow, and concluded that the air gun equipment that has come out is not archery equipment. Um, and that's a that was the first time, I think, in my memory that we actually drew a line in the sand and said that despite what it shoots in terms of an arrow projectile, this is not archery equipment, and thus we do not believe believe uh, that it has a place or a, a role in especially the bow hunting and archery seasons that most states have. So that's a very strong position, but I wanted you to know our process because it's been around a long time. It's based on engineering data and the definitions are very clear about exactly what constitute archery equipment and what does not ar- constitute archery equipment. Last question, Jay, because we as always on Bow Hunting Radio, my 45 minutes goes by extremely fast. I get I get engrossed in these conversations and you're honestly, man, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, heap too many laurels upon you, but you're like a, a, a fountain of information when it comes to archery. I could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff. But uh, last question, what is the future of of bow hunting, uh, you know, as a sport and as an industry, what do you see, Jay, as somebody who's involved intimately on a day-to-day basis? As you look out five, ten years down the road, where are we, you know, in your mind? I think we have never been positioned to be in a better place than we are today with bow hunting, particularly as a, a you know, as a, a subset of archery. First of all, we're in a sport that I think is, is, is eminently enjoyable by much more diverse communities than anything else that's out there, number one. I might be a little biased, by the way. Uh, but number two, bow hunting. In today's world where people are focused more on fitness, on eating healthy, on I'm trying to grab a hold of a little bit of nature, a little bit of naturalness wherever you can find it i think bow hunting gives us that it's 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 closest thing we have to going out in the woods and in a professional orderly safe and humane fashion being able to take critters that you could uh, bring to your table and enjoy with your family if you don't do that you can still enjoy the idea that you're helping control and manage a natural resource that occurs in communities all over the country and that's going to be increasingly the the landscape in which you know your sons and my grandsons are going to be spending their time so I don't think the future's ever look brighter. I think the hard part for us, especially old codgers like me, is let's adapt. Let's be willing to change. Let's let's go ahead and make sure that a bow hunter that hunts in a suburban community is every bit as important to us as a bow hunter that hunts in the north woods of Maine or hunts in the you know the swamps and rivers of the south or or hunts in you know elk from the highest peaks in the in the, in, in Montana. Not everybody's going to get a chance to do that. Not everybody can do it. Uh, but those who can tremendous but those who can't if they can still enjoy our experience uh, in their neighborhood they can put on some camo they can get back to nature they can enjoy all that that outdoor environment they can share it with their kids grunting in bucks the neat thing is small game large game fish we can do so many things because it embeds what we do in nature and it brings our family and our kids and grandkids with us so I don't think we've ever had an opportunity like that and I look around I don't know that I see a whole lot of other outdoor activities that 
that offer everything that we have. So, you know, we, we, we just need to get to work and realize it's 2017 and you're going to have to make sure that you're okay with your son sitting in the blind with you, uh, maybe checking something on his phone. Maybe his girlfriend sit, shot him something on Facebook and he shot her a picture of him sitting in the stand. That's okay. Hey, whatever it takes to keep him out there. Well said, my friend. That's Jay Mackinch, president of the Archery Trade Association. Fast, fast, 45 minutes. Love the information, Jay. Really, really appreciate you being with us today. And like you said, when you get these next studies come out and you've got some more information to share with us, love to have you back sometime. We'd be happy to. And Frank, and, and enjoy your family and your boys. Will do, Jay. Hey, thanks again. God bless. And uh, wish you all the success of uh, 2017 can bring you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.